Good day, folks, and welcome to this epiphenomenal episode on Michel Foucault. So this, I suppose, technically, this is kind of the pre-episode introduction. I just wanted to step in and say hello to everybody before we begin the formal activity of the episode itself, which I guess if we want to say it's a pre-epiphenomena episode, that would make it, you could also call it an anti-epiphenomenal episode. Of course, the term epiphenomenal, one that I'm very fond of, I, I, when we hear it used colloquially, to the extent that we hear the term epiphenomenal used colloquially, or the term colloquially used colloquially, for that matter, but when we, when we think about the way the term epiphenomenon is used, of course, we don't hear it a lot, but what it typically means is, is kind of a, a factor that we just don't need to consider that much. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't have a, a part to play in the overall conversation that we're having. So, for example, actually, it appeared, the word appeared in a recent episode of the show Succession, which, um, guilty pleasure, I'll admit that I'm kind of fond of it, uh, but I think it was Kendall, who's, you know, saying and trying to dismiss what someone is trying to tell him, doesn't want to listen to it, says, oh, th th that's, that's epiphenomenal, it just doesn't matter. And there is a bit of a misnomer in using that label of epiphenomena to describe Michel Foucault, who we're going to talk about today because he does have an impact on the next couple episodes we'll be hearing. Namely, uh, he's kind of the, I don't want to say the inspiration, but his sort of analytical framework, Michel Foucault's analytical framework, was employed by the author who we're really going to be looking at in the next couple episodes, a guy named Bernard Cohn, who examined the structures of imperialism in India, who looked at the way knowledge was gained and used in India by the imperialists, uh, he really used Foucault's style of analysis to inform how he would approach his own work studying the history of imperialism in India. So in that sense, uh, this is not an epiphenomena episode. You, you might say it's a, a non-epiphenomena episode. You might say it's an anti-epiphenomena episode, making this the anti-anti-epiphenomena segment of the anti-epiphenomena show. Now, alternately, of course, if the epi is what makes the epiphenomenal not really matter, we could just remove that, but then that would be me calling this episode phenomenal, which, you know, I do my best with the, the positive thinking, not necessarily always a, a strong suit of mine, as it were, but I, you know, I, I try, I try. Still, that seems that seems a little immodest, right? That seems a, a little much. And maybe also putting people's expectations. I come out and say, okay, we've had 20 odd episodes. There, yeah, they're fine. Maybe you like them, maybe you don't. This one, however, phenomenal. Then, boy, then the ante's really, the, <laughs> then the ante is really raised. Uh, the expectations will be raised and, and presumably that could be problematical as well. But in any event, if that's the road we want to take, we will call this our pre-phenomenal introduction to this epiphenomenal show on Michel Foucault. Now, the first thing to say about Michel Foucault is that I would call him an almost purely critical philosopher, meaning he's great for breaking down our assumptions and our presumptions and our, our habits of thought that we probably didn't even realize we were getting into. He's great for looking at a philosophical conundrum, looking at our history, and really arriving at a very different read that gives us a different perspective, uh, allows us to see things in a very different way. So, for example, 
we're about to look at uh, Foucault's seminal work, Discipline and Punish. Now, in this book, Foucault examines European history, starting back in the Dark Ages, moving forward into more modern times. His subject, well, first of all, his subject, as always, is power. Everything for, for Foucault is about power. Explicitly in this, what Foucault is looking at is the way the state, and often in particular prisons, but I, I really think that the lessons apply more broadly to the state in general, the way the state would use these big, vivid displays of violence and torture as a means of showing their, their strength, their power, and, and enforcing their will on, on the people. And he looks as that history moves forward into more, again, more current times, even into more of the, the Victorian era. And he sees how the apparatus of surveillance in various forms begins to replace that much more explicit, much more vivid, much more public display of violence that had been the norm previously. And what he wants us to see in that transformation is that, although, yeah, of course, everyone's going to agree that getting rid of doing things like breaking someone on the wheel in the public square, of course, that is a positive thing. And yet, that doesn't mean that the expression of power on the part of the state has simply gone away. It hasn't simply dissipated. In fact, it's become much more expansive. It's, it's started to involve all of us to a much greater extent, whereas it used to focus on a comparatively limited, limited number of people, right? Now, my point in talking about this, and we'll talk about it, obviously, at much greater length in the actual episode, but my point in talking about this is again to, to point out that I really do think of Foucault as a purely critical thinker, meaning there's not a lot we can do with that, right? We're not going to go uh, sort of go to a, 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 you know, go march in the streets and demand that they bring back, uh, you know, breaking people on the wheel, right? That, that's not what any of us want. There's nothing to really be done with this in the immediate sense, but the perspective that he offer, offers really does change the way we think about these questions, does change the way we look at the course of this history. Now, we'll see that applies just as much when we start looking at Bernard Cohn and the way he examines the workings of power in Imperial India, the activities of the English in India. It's very much the same thing, sort of unintended, unexpected consequences of actions that are taken in these systems that end up creating patterns, creating circumstances that still very much impact us to this day. So that should just about wrap up our anti-epiphenomenal introduction to this episode on Michel Foucault, which I certainly hope you will enjoy. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can catch me on Twitter at A Freedom of Ideas. You can shoot me an email, words at A Freedom of Ideas. You can check out the website, wait for it, afreedomofideas.com. On the website, you can find information on uh, you know, information that you could possibly use to introduce the show to a friend or, you know, a, or a, a moderate acquaintance or a family member, maybe even an enemy, whatever, whatever floats your boat in that regard. But lots of information you could use to introduce the show to others. And of course, there are ways on there if you had any interest in supporting the show, which of course would be lovely. Uh, all of that is there as well. But again, thank you for tuning in, and I certainly hope you enjoy the show.
Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. We're doing just a brief epiphenomena episode today on Michel Foucault, the French philosopher. In our next full episode, we're going to be looking at Bernard Cohn's The English in India, which is an analysis of imperialism that uses an analytical methodology first developed by Michel Foucault. For those of you who haven't read Foucault in a while, I thought it'd be nice to get sort of an all-too-glib refresher under our belts here. Working in the latter half of the 20th century, as what we would now call part of the postmodern school, and you guys know I don't like those labels, I think they invariably do a disservice to the way we think about these folks, but suffice to say, Michel Foucault was by no means one of our foundations folks. He's much later on, he probably, if he'd, uh, if he hadn't died quite young, he probably would or would have been working until up, at least up until the 21st century. In any event, not part of our foundation's folks by any stretch. He's uh, probably better to say that he spent most of his career taking jackhammers to those foundations, but, you know, I, I digress. Foucault's main project in the latter stages of his, as I say, unfortunately far too brief career, was to trace the way power expressed itself in various aspects of society. He pointed out, in essence, that power, the power held by a few people and institutions over the mass of people, power flowed through civil society like rushing water. And, like rushing water, you, you, maybe you could divert, you could divert it, uh, you could possibly restrain it to a limited extent, but the fundamental dynamic of power, and power in this sense we, we should understand, reflects uh, expressions of cruelty, of violence, but all in sort of an official capacity. The power of the church, the power of government, the power of the wealthy, the power of royalty. Power and the expression and effects of power that were simply, as far as Foucault was considered, these were inevitable. They would always be there. And there was no way to really lessen or mitigate it. All you could do was, just like you would if you had a, a river running completely unbidden through your town, well, maybe you'd find a way to divert that. Maybe you'd find a way to try and direct its energy somewhat, but you're certainly not simply going to stop the river and have that be done. Foucault's view of power is very similar to that. Now, the paradigmatic example of Foucault uh, 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 and his thinking about power is in his Discipline and Punish, in which he discusses the introduction of what's called a panopticon to prisons, uh, and this actually, the, this he's looking at an historical time, uh, actually right immediately prior to uh, John Stuart Mill's time. Now we need a, a visual here so you can kind of think of what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to to paint a picture of here. Think back to a somewhat older prison. The Panopticon was that central tower in the middle of the prison with tinted windows on every side, so you kind of had the prison like a almost look like a fort, like a circle, and in the middle was this one particular tower. The panopticon, of course, allowed the jailers to see every prisoner all at once. It was kind of looking in on every single one of the cells. It didn't allow, however, it didn't allow the prisoners to know whether or not there, was, there were any jailers actually in the panopticon. Thus, the prisoner always felt that they might be being watched, and thus that they probably shouldn't do anything that might warrant punishment. Now, if that sounds Orwellian to you, consider that prior to the Panopticon, 
when jailers could only see prisoners when they actually sought them out. Uh, just imagine, you know, you can't see all the cells at once. They didn't have the ability, uh, at least in theory, to keep constant watch over all the prisoners in a given institution. The typical method for controlling prisoners was to make horrible, violent examples of whoever they caught misbehaving. And for this, we're thinking back to presumably a couple hundred years before something like a panopticon and that style of jail would be, would be in popular use. So this is almost more of a medieval thing that we want to think back to that period. So in this scenario, if someone does anything wrong at all, to, to ensure the maintenance of their power, jailers would need to respond with overwhelming violence and cruelty. Foucault links this back to really an entire history of physical punishment enacted by forces of the state, which we would surely call inhumane torture now, but which followed the same basic principle. As the state, you know, in, in a, a medieval European state, is not capable of keeping a sort of close watch on anyone in society, much less everyone in society. So as a consequence of that, it was essential to demonstrate their power as explicitly and as frightfully as possible when they did catch a transgressor to ensure that the severity of the possible punishment that you'd kind of, if you were considering doing something bad, you're kind of thinking about what the, the punishment might be. Well, you're going to be so intimidated by the severity of the punishment if you do get caught that that's going to hopefully, as far as the state is concerned, counterbalance the fact that you actually have a pretty good chance of getting away with a lot of stuff because there's a, there's, there's certainly no surveillance state. There's a very low likelihood of people actually being caught given the facilities of the state at that time. So if I run a relatively small government or for that, for that matter, if I'm the warden of a prison, if I have very little capacity to keep watch over my charges, my citizens, my prisoners, what have you, to show them how much power I have, I need to make big displays. On the comparatively rare occasions when I'm able to catch a criminal, able to you know, catch someone doing something they're not supposed to do, I need to make a vivid example of them with a big, violent display. Now, by so doing, I hope that I'll inspire enough fear in the rest of the citizenry, in all the other prisoners, that they will see the cost of breaking the rules is just too high, and thus they won't misbehave, even if the risk of being caught is comparatively low. Think of it like a calculation, a ratio of probability of being caught to severity of the response. To get an answer to, uh, to the equation that equal good behavior on the part of inmates, if the probability of being caught was very low, the severity of punishment had to be very high. So then this brings us back to the panopticon and actually most other forms of, of surveillance that, as they're used by the state and developed over the years and the centuries. This brings us back to thinking of the panopticon, which at first sounded really creepy to us, right? Because it means that we could almost, theoretically, we could almost always be being watched. Well, actually, we also, we see that it, in its context, it was quite a humane intervention. By convincing all of the prisoners that their every transgression was likely to be observed, or at least that it very well could be, it was no longer necessary to commit such extreme violence when a transgressor was caught. Again, in its time, 
this was hailed as a truly humanist innovation, a new technology that allowed the state to be less cruel, less tangibly immediately destructive to its own citizens, while still maintaining the order that it was the state's role to cultivate. Now, Foucault's point in this, and the point that he makes throughout his work, is that what seems like a genuine suppression of violence and abject power is, in fact, simply a tr transmogrification of that same power. So now, on the face of it, yeah, it's great that we're using uh, hyper-violent torture far less, far less often, right? That's good. That is an innovation. We don't want to be breaking people on the wheel anymore. But the torture hasn't really gone away just because the power behind it has receded. Rather, the way that power, the way that discipline expresses itself has changed. And in fact, it's begun to have a direct sway over a much larger percentage of the people. So it goes back to our ratio, right? Rather than a small number of people experiencing overwhelming effects of state power and violence, rather than a single overwhelming dis disciplinary event focused on a single person, everyone within this group now experiences some fraction of the overall disciplinary power of the prison or of the state. Not necessarily through violence, but through the coercive force of every individual now feeling that they are exposed, that they are watched. Further, Foucault points out, what had once been a limited set of immediate consequences, though, of course, you know, as, I, as I keep saying, those consequences were likely to be profound for the person affected. But rather than that one limited single experience, there was now a sort of constant expression of that power that was designed not so much to punish as to very basically reshape the minds of the people who are subject to that power. So rather than being punished, again, in a sense, they were, they were essentially tamed. They had internalized within themselves the potential of violence. If, therefore, you could tally up the quotient of power being exerted over this whole group of people, you might find that there was, like if we think of power like, like a quotient, like a 10%, 100%, however much like a scale of power being expressed, well, it's quite possible that even more power is actually being expressed, even more violence is being expressed in this system because that violence has been divvied up over the entire group versus being focused on a single individual. So it was less violent, certainly, but it was also far more pervasive and it was far more invasive. Now, Foucault makes a similar point. It's different in the details, but you see a similar dynamic at work. He makes a similar point about mental health, and uh, rather, I guess, what, what we would uh, have referred to as madness at certain historical points that Foucault was writing about. In telling his history of, quote, madness and civilization in the book of that same title, Foucault starts out by taking us back to a period in European history before, quote unquote, madness was seen as a diagnosis, before there was any capacity to diagnose these conditions, before there was any kind of infrastructure, for better or worse, to, quote unquote, treat people with mental health issues. 
he portrays this history, uh, the, the history that precedes any notion of institutionalization or quote-unquote treatment of quote-unquote madness as a period, and this is going pretty far back into more quote-unquote dark ages uh, uh, European history, but he portrays this as a period in which folks who experienced mental health challenges were kind of considered just simply part of the communities where they lived. So if folks needed care in the situation, they received it as best the people around them could manage. Perhaps they worked, perhaps in, in larger areas they begged, uh, perhaps they vacillated between living fairly typical lives and, and not being able to for however long, depending on what they were experiencing. The point was, they were likely seen as different in their communities and families, but the organism of the overall community more or less simply adapted as best it could to accommodate their lives without ever making, you know, sort of explicit labels or diagnosis or otherwise making any of this uh, seem quote unquote special or different. People with mental health challenges were just people like everybody else and like everybody else in, again, dark ages Europe. Some people struggled a little and some people struggled a lot. That was just kind of what life was. We didn't draw these lines and labels and distinctions. And I will say as an aside here that I don't think anyone with any knowledge of mental health issues or, or you know, of disability generally, I don't think they're going to say that we want to go back to not thinking of these issues at all, right? To go back to not providing medication, not providing accommodations, not thinking about architecture, public services, economic opportunity, and all the rest of it without thinking of how to make everything as equally accessible to, to all citizens as possible. With that said, however, if I can speak as a somewhat knowledgeable outsider uh, to the disability rights movement, I think that many people with disabilities would very much like to find a way to go back to thinking about these issues without automatically thinking of people with disabilities as kind of this wholly separate and different group, that they're somehow abstracted from the general goings-on of society. But this, I should say, is that this is the subject of a whole show, probably an entire podcast series. Actually, it, it is the subject of a number of, of great podcasts, and I am certainly not qualified to speak on it. So, in any event, fast forward however many years from this sort of dark ages period where we're not really thinking about mental health or madness or anything else as, a, as an official diagnosis. Fast forward however many years, and you begin to see the rise of what we would call institutions. Though in most cases, uh, the earliest in institutions were even more barbaric than their more modern descendants, which are, as we've discussed at other points in the show, which were often extremely barbaric. Now, these were often run by the church. These often at first operated on the premise that quote-unquote madness was the consequence of some kind of demonic possession, and thus the clinical response was initially far more punishing than it was palliative. But go forward in time, you know, knowledge is gained, care does improve, the, the process of improvement was glacially slow, and yet, of course, progress was made. But Foucault's point in looking at this, in, in essence, was that while we normally see a process of improvement occurring over generations from the period where there was no response whatsoever to our present day of increasingly rational and genuinely supportive care, you know, again, far from perfect. We have not got this right as a society, but 
at least there has certainly been notable improvement over the very first instances of institutionalization in response to mental health issues. But looking at the same history, Foucault would say that what we take for improvement is simply an evolving refinement of increasingly precise and ubiquitous power wielded by already powerful entities. Throughout history has been the church, the state, society. Uh, uh, pick one, but certainly they've all played their role at different points in history. It's the, what Foucault sees is the ongoing development of power on the part of these institutions over the individual. Now, in Foucault's rendering, what had been, way back in the day, quote-unquote, just another way to live in earlier European history, likely, again, you know, yeah, sure, it, it, was, it was a way of living that presented challenges, it presented problems, it presented hardships, but that was all, you know, challenges, problems, and hardships was a pretty common feature for life for a lot of folks in this time. But what had been just another way to live life became the subject of institutional power over the individual. At first, this power was blunt and horrific. And I would say we've surely grown, it's you know, grown less so over the centuries that we've continued to sort of uh, develop our, our notions on how we care for and support, support folks who confront mental health issues. But Foucault, and here I, I have to read in a bit, as Foucault, Foucault did not live to see our present day, but I imagine Foucault looking at our current society and pointing out that what had once been a state of existence that applied only to a small portion of society, meaning folks who in the Middle Ages, for example, were identified as having mental health ch challenges or were considered possessed or whatever the terminology was used, those folks, that small group of people received, you know, quote unquote, treatment, or if you prefer, they, they re received punishment and uh, alienation as a response to, to this diagnosis. But again, that was once a very small subsection of society. A concentration on a comparatively small group of people of this expression of power. But the experience of some degree of challenges related to mental health, you know, again, at least to a limited extent, well, that's now almost ubiquitous, right? Most of us now talk and think about our mental health. Most of us feel the impact of quote-unquote stress and other short-term challenges in the way that historically we would certainly never have discussed. Most of us, I shouldn't say most, but many folks, myself included, describe themselves as experiencing some degree of diagnosable mental health challenges. But, you know, um, if you want to put this glibly, we think back to as, as recently as the American Civil War, certainly didn't do a lot of talking about mental health days, and yet now this conversation has sort of enmeshed itself with pretty much everyone in society, at least to a very large extent. Now, Foucault might look at this, uh, something which, by the way, I, I will say, most of us would describe as pretty obvious progress. And again, myself included, I not saying we want to go back to a point where we're not talking about mental health issues, quite, quite the opposite. But Foucault might look at this, even these, the, the obvious pieces of progress in all this, and point out that we as a people have handed over kind of, you might think of it as we've handed over partial control of our minds, of ourselves, of our essences, 
to, to doctors, to insurance companies, to, to drug manufacturers. So just like those prisoners internalize the power of the prison system with the advent of the panopticon, just like even though there was a much less explicit display of power, that power sort of spread itself out and began to touch every person that was affected by that system. So have we all, to the extent that I think would fascinate Foucault again, so have we all internalized notions surrounding mental health. Now, again, I want to be very, very clear about this because unfortunately this is still for some reason a conversation. How much do we talk about this? How accepting should we be of this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I truly doubt that Michelle Foucault would run around pouring out your antidepressant medication down the toilet or, or, um, or from that matter, I hope, I don't think he would do it to my antidepressant med medication either. But he, he was, and he was not suggesting that we kind of rise up and fight this new permutation of power. He simply wanted us to be more aware of the longer historical trends involved here, right? What was once a form of power concentrated, often violently, often brutally, around a small portion, or a small subset of any given society, that has now diffused out to the point that it's impacting society as a whole. Talk about mental health now affects the vast majority of this. And again, that's progress in a sense. Treatment of mental health issues now involves the vast majority of us. That's excellent that we have access to that. That's all good news. The fact remains, a remarkable change has taken place in our society, and we don't have to reject it. We don't have to fight back against this. We don't have to say this is some evil, terrible conspiracy that's happening. We don't have to fight back against it to stop and wonder what the ramifications of these changes are. So when I said before that I tend to think of a guy like Foucault as largely a critical thinker. This is, this is kind of what I was referring to, right? This is really fascinating insight to have on the development of our history. It's a fascinating challenge to some of our presumptions, some of the standard ways that we think about things. At the same time, there's really very little in Foucault, at least not in these particular issues that he's talking about. You can't really run out and implement this. You don't have a sense as you might with Locke or, or Mill or certainly with like a, a stoical philosopher, you don't have a sense of what you're supposed to go out and do in response to any of this. It's just, it's just kind of a, a really interesting criticism, a really interesting analysis of the dynamics that Foucault sees in this history. So in any event, to summarize Foucault, as he pertains to our discussion on English imperialism in India, in his historical analysis, Foucault shows us numerous instances, as we said, of the way power, as it is expressed in society, in institutions, by people in power, the, the way that expression of power changes over the centuries, often in ways that we certainly don't predict and, and don't even necessarily see as we're experiencing them. What begins often as explicit, brutal displays of power that have a limited tangible effect on people, meaning it, it, it has a, a very significant effect, but on a very small number of people. Uh, you know, again, think of our misbehaving prisoner who's made a violent example of. That expression of power moves under the surface. It becomes less severe. 
becomes less violent, becomes less visible, but it's also far more widespread. So, in comparison to the one prisoner, or the one citizen, who is caught in a bad act and punished with shocking brutality, now we see that most, or, or maybe even every prisoner, every citizen, under surveillance, external punishment becomes an internalized discipline. What was the heavy shackle on one person becomes the thin string that's tied to every person. The actual amount of power being expressed is the same. In fact, it might have even increased, but the expression of it has been diffused. It has less of an individual effect, but on a far greater number of people. But of course, Foucault's point will also be on the ultimate impact on people as a whole. What does it do to the mind of a prisoner or of a citizen to regard themselves always as under surveillance? To what extent has the power of the state moved from the external to the internal, to the mind of the individual, and to the collective mind of the community? To what extent, as we've been asking questions like this, if this transmogrification, as we called it, of power, if that's having an impact on the, the nature of mind, the structure, the presumptions of the individual mind, well, how do those changes reflect back onto the overall civil society? But all that will be that for this uh, short Epiphenomena episode. I'm sorry to have given so brief and cursory an introduction to Foucault. Uh, he absolutely fascinates me. I, I really enjoy his work. Um, but I do expect we'll come back to him at some point, likely not in this series, other than as he, he pertains to our good friend Cohn. As we spend the next two episodes on Cohn, I'll be curious to hear from you if you hear the echoes of Foucault in his work, and if you feel, as I do, that this is a really kind of compelling repurposing of this particular analytical structure to move it away from these, these pieces of European society and history and really look at it as it unfolded in the imperial rule of the English in India. But until then, thank you as always for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next time. I'm looking forward to it.